0: Well, uh, as we mentioned before in our main service, um, the next series of questions that we're going to be going through all have to do with the law of God, particularly the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that He has given to His church as a framework, a skeleton of ethical behavior um, by which we might worship Him and glorify Him. And uh, I want to remind you that as well as being um, instruction for our behavior that the law of God is also a window into the character of the God that we love and serve. Every law that he gives us comes forth from uh, the person that he is. And so as we go through these laws, um, resist the urge to just think of them as an instruction manual for life. See them also as a window into the desires of of God. And and, and so we might understand better what he desires for us, what he loves, and what he hates, uh, what he wants for his people. and and how he is protecting us by giving us these good boundaries and borders that keep us uh, from the self-destruction that our our sinful hearts are so prone towards. So we're gonna be handling these these next several catechism questions in such a way that uh, the questions that are presented in the catechism that have to do with a given commandment uh, will be grouped together. So tonight we're gonna be looking at questions 50 through 53, each of which have to do um, with that first commandment uh, of the 10. Uh, So question 50 simply asks, what is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second question behind that, 51, what is required in the first commandment? We're going to see that there will be positive requirements for each commandment of the 10, and then also uh, negative prohibitions for each of the 10. So question 51's answer is that the first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God, to be the only true God, and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. So we'll look in some depth at what it means that the Lord is not just a God or even the God, but that He is our God. If we are in covenant to Him, that should be the cry of our heart. Question 52, what is forbidden in the first commandment? So this is the negative aspect as opposed to the positive of command number one. And the answer for this is the first commandment forbiddeth the denying of we're not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. Uh, one of my challenges tonight would be to not uh, use up the material that, next, uh, that our next preacher is going to be dealing with as they look at the second commandment to not create any idols that would uh, represent false gods that we might give our worship and affection to. Uh, but some of that is also in, incumbent in the first commandment to have no other gods before him. So we'll try not to overlap that too much. And then question 53 says, what are we especially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? And the answer to that is that these words before me in the first commandment each uh, teach us rather that God who seeth all things taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. We're going to talk about what it means to have a God before us and uh, how this command is not simply... um, a command of order, but it is also a command of relationship. That is, it is intended to draw our attention and affection towards this God who is above all and who uh, deserves our attention and adoration. So last week we looked at Exodus chapter 20 verse 2. And Paul demonstrated how verse 2 in Exodus 20 should properly be understood as a graceful prelude to the 10 words which formulate the basic uh, structure of the biblical law. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and and listen to that. Uh, it's important that, as we're going to be spending several weeks on the law of God, that we don't miss track of the grace that is also incumbent in, in our God, and that as He gives us the law, he is also um, urging us to rejoice in the grace that, that He has towards His people. Uh, the God who ordains these laws is a God who rescues us from depravity. as He brought the Israelites out of the slavery that they were trapped in in Egypt so too does he spare us from the serious effects and slavery of our own sin. He enters into relationship with Israel by covenant and part of that covenant arrangement is a law by which the Israelites will live and conduct themselves. And it's not by accident that the very first law aims at clarifying the terms of personal worship and relationship that the Israelites are to have with this rescuing God. So Exodus Chapter 20, verse 2, or uh, I think it's supposed to be verse 3. says, you shall have no other gods before me. So that is an interesting turn of phrase. To have a God doesn't mean so much that we are in possession of a God. It doesn't put us in any sort of position of authority towards God. Rather, it is meant to help us understand that we're to acknowledge that God is real. That we are to willingly ascribe glory to that God, and that would offer some form of devotion and praise to him because of his great nature that stands apart from all that has been created. At many times throughout history, and certainly around the time that the Exodus occurred, it was not at all uncommon for a person to have several localized gods, each believed to hold some form of dominion over a practical facet of life. And so Egypt, of course, would be the most natural example of this. Each of the ten plagues that God used um, to scorn the pharaoh were in in some ways designed to push back against one of the many false gods that the Egyptians adored and worshipped at that time. Uh, You might read through the book of Exodus and think to yourself, well, this seems quite inefficient. If the goal was just to get the Israelites out of slavery, out of bondage and into freedom, Uh, then why didn't he just start with the last of the plagues? The worst of the plagues probably would have just done it up front. But God has his purposes and and his plans, and there was first commandment enforcement involved with the giving of the ten plagues. Each of those plagues brings to shame the false gods of the Egyptians, which tried to steal away the glory that belonged only to God. And I think the Israelites needed to see that. Where they had been under the influence of uh, this culture, which had pressed upon them this idea that God is not one, but his pantheon, is many. And so to see God uh, bring each of those pictures of God's under subjugation of his truth was a powerful way to send them out into the wilderness where he had called them to worship him. As Yahweh strengthens his covenant with Israel, he makes it crystal clear that there will be no room for that kind of hedging of the bets, if you will. It was very common in those days to worship this God, but then also to give a little worship to that God, and maybe to this God as well. And if you had triple idols, you had three times the likelihood of one of those gods maybe being real and maybe being able to offer you some sort of support or blessing if you gave them some worship. And so Yahweh, the true God, is making it very clear to his people that worship is not a, a game to be played. It is not some sort of way to manipulate higher beings into, your, um, into fulfilling your desires or meeting your needs. But worship is something that is intrinsic in our design, and it is something that we give to God because he deserves it, not just because we're trying to woo his power um, to benefit our situations. Isaiah forty two eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This verse sets the need for the doctrine, really, if you think about it, of the Trinity. When we look at the first commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me, this is an exclusive command. It excludes the worship of anything beside the one true God. And that is an interesting thing to think about because when we look at Scripture, Jesus is worshipped. First Chronicles 29.11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Israel is unabashedly and consistently a monotheistic religion. Basically, no one who respects Yahweh would worship anyone beside him. And no one who respects God allows another human to adore them in that way. And so look at Acts chapter 10, verses 25 through 26, which says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand, I too am a man. So here in this um, historical narrative, in Acts chapter 10, we see that Peter, who is renowned for the power with which God had displayed um, his ability through Peter, was known to have the power to heal. And this Gentile believer, Cornelius, had come to him in hopes that there would be a healing for his family. And acknowledging the power of God in Peter, he did what Gentiles were prone to do. He bowed in adoration towards Peter. But Peter, being a good Jew who cared about the ten words, knew that this was inappropriate for this man to bow in worship. Even though it was the power of God that was being displayed through Peter, he knew that and professed it. He knew that it was not right for another man to bow to him. In Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 11, and then carrying on into verse 15. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And then they went on for a little while describing how Barnabas was, I I believe it was, was like Hermes, and and Paul was like Apollo, and there's these, these connections to the Greek pantheon of gods that they were prone to worship. They thought this were the embodiment of the the Greek gods that they had venerated. But in verse 15, Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So these Gentiles had gods with a little G. They weren't real gods, They were simply vain things. And I love that phraseology there because here we see Paul is not even giving them the dignity of calling their false objects of worship gods. He says these vain things turn from them and turn to the one true living God. We see this again in in the book of Revelation when John is brought into the throne room of heaven and he sees magnificent things. and And at various points through that ordeal... He is encountered with an angel who comes and speaks to him. And the glory of that angel strikes him in such a way that he bows down before the angel. And this happens two different times. And on both occasions, the angel, though a divine messenger of God, implores him to get up off of the ground and to reserve his, his reverence and worship to the true God alone. This is all in compliance with the first command that we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, of course, he did many miraculous things. Many signs and wonders attested to his special connection with God the Father. And so, of course, people seeing this often responded to that in a worshipful way. And so how does Jesus respond when other men, when other women, treat him with worship? Matthew chapter 2.11 And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Of course, at this point, Jesus is a tiny baby, so there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, protesting from him about this worship that he's being given. But Mary and Joseph were both good Jews, and they knew that only God deserves worship. But they had also been told by the angels that prepared them for this incredible event that this would not just be a man. This would be God in the flesh. Jesus Christ come to dwell with us. And so they allow this. Matthew 28, verses 9 and 17. And behold, Jesus met with them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the resurrected Christ, after having given his life on the cross and then appearing in his bodily eternal form, is worshiped by people, and he does not prohibit them from doing so. Luke 24:52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. John 9:38. Thomas, one of the twelve, said, "Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him." Oh that wasn't Thomas, who was that one? I think that was a man made um, given sight who was blind John 20 28 Thomas answered him my Lord and my God these are all worshipful responses to the divinity of God on display through his humanity and so the testimony of, of Scripture shows that Christ is worshiped as God and never prohibited it this creates great problems for the Pharisees for instance who knew the law of God and recognized that it was blasphemy to claim to be equal to God and to receive the worship that only God deserves. But the testimony of Scripture names Jesus as God. Hebrews 1.8. But the, uh, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. have that up there. Yeah, And Titus 2.13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here Paul acknowledges that Jesus is not just a prophet, he is not just a a very mighty man of the Lord, but he is actually God and Savior to his people. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is speaking of, Jesus in in the throne room of God. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So obviously this is not God the Father speaking, for God the Father did not die. Uh, Only the person of the Trinity that we know as Jesus the Son died, and here the name Beginning and end, literally Alpha and Omega, is attributed to Jesus. This is a name that no one else could bear but God. Who else is the beginning and the end but one who is uncreated and eternal? So, as you can see, this strong rooting of worship in the fact that God is one and one alone necessitates the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, And this is one of the first tasks of the early church, to try to come to terms with the fact that they are to worship one God alone. But here, Jesus has come to them as Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And they clearly needed to worship him and see him as equal to the Father. Now, Roman Catholics, in an attempt to justify the worship of Mary, in their attempts to justify praying to the saints, have argued that there are different degrees of affection So Roman Catholics teach that Mary and the saints are worthy of what they would call veneration, which is a deep-rooted respect for one of deserving character. Um, That, they say, is different than worship, that only Jesus and the Father and the Spirit deserve worship, but that Mary and the saints deserve different degrees of veneration. Now, looking back at history, um, I love our nation. I respect George Washington our first president and I respect what he did but I don't pray to him right I don't have a candle of George Washington and I don't hope that George is going to somehow reach back from the grave and do something nice to help me today that's what happens in the Roman Catholic tradition this is more than just veneration it's more than just respect it is the improper worship of people created by God people who are finite and who are not of the same substance as the father so Sadly, what we see this argument for veneration doing is it has become the new excuse du jour of those cults that want to claim that Jesus was somehow less than God. Um, In interacting with, uh, for instance, Iglesia Ni Cristo, uh, a church out of the Philippines, which says that Jesus is worthy of veneration and honor, uh, but is of a different order than the Father, is a created being and exalted above other people, but not quite God and not quite divine, they basically established the same argument that the Roman Catholic Church tried to establish in the justification of their worship for saints. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. Jesus was worshipped. He wasn't just venerated or admired. He was worshipped. Mm-hmm. And this worship was in no way a violation of the first command. And so... Praise the Lord's saints over the generations have given us language and have hammered out important creeds and testimonies for us that help us to understand and process properly this unique nature of God that he is one being uh, with a shared nature between three distinct persons God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit technically we are told to have no gods before him right um Is it okay then to have gods after him? Is it enough to have God as our first God and then to have some lesser form of worship for gods after him since we're talking about Mary and the saints? Now, the answer to this is is implied in the 10, and it becomes more clear in the commands that follow where we are told not to make any vain images of God. The idea is not simply that we should love God the best, which we should, of course. That's part of the command. But the idea of this command is that we should love God with an adoration that nothing else in our lives receives. As we work through the commandments, we will receive helpful direction regarding both the positive and the negative applications of laws such as this first commandment. And We will do the same tonight. So answer 51 says that the first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. This is largely positive in its commands, uh, with one aspect that is quite negative. So, we must acknowledge and know God to be the only true God. Uh, This requires some things. It requires that we attain at least some knowledge of who this God is, right? We shouldn't just embrace a God we do not know. So if we're going to know that God is the true God, if we are going to believe that and accept it, we need to at least have a rudimentary working knowledge of God. But this command and the nature of its instruction to us should really spur on in us a desire to know as much as we can about this God. If he is the only true God, if he is the only one who's worthy of our adoration and our praise and our worshipful devotion, then we should desire to know as much about him as we possibly can. We should observe his works. We should look at the handiwork of our God who created all things and marvel at its complexity and the beauty of it. We should see the order that is intrinsic in God's designs, an order that flows and reflects the the nature of God himself. He is not a God of disorder and chaos. He is a God of truth, and he's a God of, of peace. We should meditate on his holiness, on the fact that God is different than all of the things That he has made. So, examining the Trinity is a wonderful way to do that. By looking at this unique nature of God, we see that there is nothing that mimics what God is in all of the creation. No other being has three persons that express that perfect unity of being. Uh, Like God does, He he stands alone in this regard. So, when we meditate on his holiness, meaning his uniqueness, then it should give us a greater sense, a deepening sense of awe and wonder. And it should increase our fear of God. And I say that in the positive meaning of the word, that we should have a a trembling reverence at his power and his uniqueness, that there is nothing else like him in all that has been made. We should acquire acquire some degree of familiarity with what God has revealed about himself. So the word should not be strange to us. We should go to the word regularly and seek to mine it for the things that God has given to us that helps us to understand what kind of a being we're worshiping when we worship the true God. And we should pursue Him in prayer. We should directly talk to our God. If Christ is our Savior and He mediates between us and God, then we should be spending time every day seeking Him out, sharing the desires of our heart and the concerns of our conscience. We should be asking Him to give us direction and strength to protect us and keep us from error. We should be asking Him to give us a repentant heart that that is willing and, and humble enough to turn away from sin and to know what is good and to prefer it. We should be asking him to give us greater affections, more holy and pure desires, that we should want things that have a significance in eternity and not just things that are of superficial quality and, and blessing to us. Psalm 29.2 says that we are to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. We're to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. When you come to know of God, you will see that worship is really just giving Yahweh what belongs to Him, what is properly His. No other being in all of existence is as great as God is, and none deserves the adoration that God alone deserves. So when we worship any lesser thing, we're engaging in an inappropriate behavior. Only God deserves the kind of veneration and worship that comes with that style of love and affection. To follow this command, it implies that we'll have at least some knowledge, not only of our own God, but also of these other so-called gods, so that we can confidently say that they fall short of the truth and the splendor of the real God. So we should spend some of our time thinking about these rivals, these false gods in the world that are trying to grab the attention of the very people we're trying to share the gospel with and, and teach Christ to. In addition to knowing our God, we must be willing and able to confess that God is God and that he is our Lord. God has given us a vehicle to accomplish this in the New Testament. He has given us the sacrament of baptism. and Today we are blessed to be able to experience the sacrament of Lord's Supper, uh, which reminds us of the person and the work of Christ and his imminent return. Uh, But we've also got this beautiful practice of baptism, which is... uh, the method by which we proclaim to the world that we have come to acquire a knowledge of God that comes not from the wisdom of human men and reason, but it comes from the blessing of a regeneration that only the Holy Spirit can bring in our lives. So when we have come to this proper knowledge of God, when we've been convicted of worshiping the wrong things, when we see our need to repent and trust in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then God implores us, to go forward and to be baptized in such a way that the world will see that we know that God is the one true God and that we now are living our lives in such a way that this first commandment orders the way we love things and the way that we give our reverent affections. Baptism is a public recognition that the God of the Bible is in fact our God, not in the sense that we possess him, but in the sense that he possesses us now. That our broken and sinful lives were headed for ruin and wrath but because of the work of Jesus Christ, we've been pulled out of that that fiery destruction. We've been made new and now we belong to our Father who is in heaven. So friends, we must go beyond just academic head knowledge of this God. We must know him through a relational, covenantal connection. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David. Think about how the scriptures describe him in that way He is a God who is personal, who knows individuals and redeems them to himself. And so our connection to God, cannot be sterile. It cannot be mechanical. It must be interpersonal. Romans 10, 9-10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. If God is God alone, it would make sense that our worship of God would be in accordance to what God commands, especially considering that our hearts, as fallen human beings, are prone to wander, and our affections are so easily turned to ourselves rather than to our God. So, worship should not be something that we invent as a thankful gift to the Lord. It's not like when I was a little kid and I loved my mom. And so I, I went into kindergarten and I thought, I'll make my mom this beautiful macaroni necklace because I'm sure she'll adore it and it's what I can do right now. She received that with a grateful heart, but it's not really what was necessary for her. It's not what she needed. Nobody needs a macaroni necklace, really. God, on the other hand, has told us what he desires from us. He has told us why he has made us. He has told us the ways that we can worship him best. And so we owe it to this God as an act of worship to worship him in accordance to the things that he has revealed about how he wants to be worshipped. There is also undeniably a negative aspect of this first command, and that's part of obeying God's call to worship him properly. We must do the things he's called us to do, but we should also avoid doing the things that he has forbidden. And so this negative command, you shall have no other gods before me, implies that God is known acknowledged and given some kind of worshipful adoration, but it is explicit in forbidding that kind of relationship that anything with anything other than the true God. So to follow the first command, you mustn't worship anything else. Not only do you need to worship the one true God, but you need to block off your heart and your soul from worshiping anything that is not that one true God. The word only in our catechism reflects exclusivity. There is, of course, an opportunity cost with obeying the commands of God. If you've never heard that phrase, it's an economic term, meaning that sometimes in order to get one particular thing, you have to be willing to sacrifice the other things that you could have otherwise chosen to take instead. It acknowledges the the limitations of humanity, that we can't do all things and we can't have all things. If you want Christ, you must give up the rights and the freedom to worship anything besides Christ. So to follow the first command, you you have to give up the freedom to to worship and adore things that perhaps were easy for you to worship before, that perhaps your heart naturally went to before. And this isn't really so foreign to us. If we say yes to marriage, we are paying an opportunity cost by doing that. Um, We are saying yes to our spouse and no to every other potential spouse that might ever wander into our lives. For the covenant of marriage is lifelong, till death do we part. And so that is a small price to pay to enter into this blessed covenant that God has called us to partake in. Uh, And so our relationship with God through covenant is somewhat similar. In fact, I believe that the marriage covenant was designed to help us learn more about this covenantal love that God wants to have for us. Let's think about this idea of exclusivity here. Is it wrong for God to be so exclusive about the adoration of his subjects. Exodus 34, 14 It says, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. We often associate jealousy with negative things, don't we? We associate jealousy with insecurity. We associate jealousy with Hubris, which is a kind of uh, overzealous uh, pride uh, where we try to control the things that are around us. We we associate it with domination, with being afraid of losing dominion over someone, and so we try to control them too much. Dictionary.com defines jealousy as a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages. It is characterized by our by or proceeds from suspicious fears or envious resentment. It is jealousy, of course, that fueled Joseph's brothers to throw him into a pit and sell him in slavery. It is jealousy that caused the Pharisees to malign Jesus and to even plot to kill him because of the threat he was to their spiritual influence. But does the unique character of God demand that we understand that concept of jealousy differently? as it applies to him. Can God be insecure? No, he cannot. An insecure person needs what he may or may not get. But God needs nothing. If we were to be wooed away by another God, Yahweh would be no less holy and magnificent for lack of our worship. His jealousy must be motivated by different stuff than our own jealousies are. And honestly, we would confess that it is right to be jealous when a covenantal relationship is on the line, right? I know that I would get an amen from John right now if I said, what if somebody comes up to your wife, John, and starts making a pass at at Ruth? It would be right for you to stand in between that man and your wife. It would be right for you to feel a sense of protection and duty to look out for that covenant relationship and to not let anything threaten it. That would be a good thing. That wouldn't be hubris. It wouldn't be selfishness. It wouldn't be unnecessary dominion. It would be a love for the covenant relationship that you have for your wife that is important to the well-being of your family and to your children and to the promises that you have made to your God. Can God be wrongfully proud? Is it possible for him to think more of himself than he ought to? Absolutely not. There is no one greater in the universe than God. In fact, only God can think as highly about God as he should. We're not capable of thinking highly enough about the God that we come to worship. He's perfect in every way and is worthy of every praise and every adoration. So when we think of a human being being jealous over something else, that is shaded and colored by the fact that that human being is a fallen creature like we are. Why does he deserve that thing that he thinks belongs to him? We can't think of jealousy the same way when we're thinking about God because God deserves what is his. Amen. There is no one who can challenge his worth or his purity. So God cannot be wrongfully proud. His glories should be shouted from the mountaintops. We should boast in Christ. Is God's jealousy a function of selfishness like our jealousies often are? How can it be? The greatest gift that God can give to us is himself. And if we treat anything other than God with holy adoration, we are only doing harm to ourselves because no one else deserves to be treated like God does. And if we treat something else like God, if we treat another person as we would only supposed to treat God, then we set ourselves up for destruction and disappointment and letdown. So God's jealousy really equates to zealous defense for his saints. In wanting only worship for himself, he's trying to guard us from worshiping things that are unworthy of worship. He is protecting his children by making worship exclusively his and never to be directed at something that is unworthy of our affection like that. Since God is so worthy of adoration, let us conclude with a final positive command. Our connection to God should go beyond simply knowing about him or even identifying with him. What he deserves and what he commands is that we worship and that we glorify him according to his good nature. I remember a few years back, man, a lot of years back now, not as young as I used to be. In college, I was debating some other students in a philosophy class that I was in, and I think the topic was on relativism and whether you could actually determine ultimate universal truth. And in that, I was trying to move this conversation towards Christ. And I was getting a lot of pushback from a couple of these students. And their primary indictment against Christianity, their big beef with Christians, is that they said Christians are far more concerned about what they're against than they are about what they are for. Have you ever heard that argument before? They always say no, 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 no. And that's way more important to them than yes. And I couldn't help but think that perhaps these students that I was speaking with had never really been around any true Christians. Because the worship and glory of God is what we as the church are for. And being for something that is true and is real and the greatest of anything means that you are by necessity against what that thing is not. If God is God alone, then you're going to be against gods that claim to be God that are not God. You're going to want to declare when something is false. And so uh, I, my heart broke for those students. I knew that they had not experienced the true and pure joy of worshiping the living God. And sadly, there's a lot of people that identify with Christ who just want to complain about things and who never show the joy and the peace that they have and the redemption that has been given to them as a free gift from Jesus. Understand that we all obey this command better the more we know of our God. For a pursuit of understanding concerning the Lord will only reinforce that there is no other God, nor is there any who are not God but are like Him. God is incredibly unique. On the flip side, ignorance of God is a dangerous position to take. And if you think about it, agnosticism, which is what many people think of as the neutral position, and I just don't know enough to decide anything yet, agnosticism is a first commandment violation because it exposes one's lack of attention to the knowledge of God. And this category of sin can grow even more serious. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. Is not asleep. Now, Peter makes it pretty clear here that these are folks who are professing to follow the true God. But because of their ignorance of the truth, they have invented a God who is like the true God, but is false. He is not accurate according to what God has revealed about himself. And in preaching that God to others, they are creating a great blasphemy. They are spreading a lie about God, and God takes that personal. So our first commandment violation uh, that we see expressed here in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, you shall have no other gods before me, includes do not create me in some form other than what I have expressed myself to be through the written word. When we neglect to know the true God, we are in grave danger of misrepresenting him to others. God's jealousy and zeal stand firmly against this spread of false worship. I want to ask this question in summary tonight. How did Jesus fulfill the first commandment? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus does not, by grace, render law useless or obsolete. Instead, as the second Adam Jesus follows the law in a way that no one had ever followed the law before. He followed God's commands perfectly and without error. And we continually fall short of the laws of God, including the first commandment. We set our hearts on things that were made by God. We love them even higher than we love God. We will talk more about this um, on our next Sunday evening as we look into idolatry, of course. And that should be on the 27th of February. Uh, We don't have Sunday evening service next week uh, because we're doing a special event at the Kestner's house, um, but we will have um, the following week a potluck at 5 o'clock followed by our annual church business meeting during the 6 o'clock hour. So we won't do our normal catechism on the 20th, but we will be back to our catechism on the 27th. Uh, We do fall short of this first commandment. We lack the drive to know our God, to engage our minds in knowing Him, We lack the discipline to be in his word regularly. We, we lack the focus in proving him to be in every way superior to his rivals. I love that song, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him over and over. You know what that means when it says that you've proved him? It means that by studying who he is and looking upon his character and his nature and seeing how better he is than all the other things in creation that try to wrestle for our attention, we've proved that he is greater than all of that. And our experiences bear that out. And we we fall short of that, don't we? If we were in the word studying him and and thinking about his excellencies, we would be proving him over and over. But because of our inattention to God's scripture, because of our weak prayer lives, uh, we find ourselves doubting. We find ourselves struggling and and chasing after things that are easier to attain, that that are more surface blessing to us rather than deep and heavy blessing that comes only from the Lord when we prioritize our time and our attention improperly, it can often reveal first commandment violations in our heart. You know, I might say that I love the Lord God, but if I'm, I'm always spending time at the movies, just watching Hollywood films, or if I'm always spending time on video games, or if I'm uh, pursuing sports constantly, and I'm not really thinking about the things of the Lord, then it reveals in my heart a lack of priority for the Lord God. When we trust our hearts more than we trust the commandments of our God, we're breaking the first commandment. For we're honoring our own instinct, our own desire, our own wisdom above that of the God that we have confessed to trust and serve. So we continually fall short of the laws of God. And this commandment was even at the heart of the very first transgression of man in Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, when we start to think of ourselves as being like God, we put another God in front of ourselves to worship, and that God is ourselves. It's our own mind, our own heart, our own desires. When we neglect to acknowledge and worship God as God, we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. You probably don't have any carved idols in your home, but I can almost guarantee that there is a mirror there. And what we see there when we gaze into that reflective glass has perhaps the greatest potential to lure us away from the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Though we fall short, brothers and sisters, we can take great courage tonight in knowing that Jesus fulfilled the first commandment. He allowed no other gods to become a god to him. He allowed no other gods to come before the true God. Luke 4, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, in him only shall you serve. Jesus fulfilled the first commandment in his perfect act of obedience to the Father. Even though Jesus had more reason to worship himself than we ever will, he refused to break this commandment and instead submitted himself continually to the will and the command of God the Father, particularly through the commands of Scripture. And even when God demanded of him more than he demanded of us, Jesus remained faithful. And in that act of obedience and submission, Jesus is teaching you and I how to be true humans. We were made in the image of God. We were made to reflect the glory of God. And we were made to trust him above all other things. Even when everything in our being screams to go left, if God is telling us we need to go right, our best, safest, most sure step is to follow the command of God and to betray our heart if necessary. The first commandment begs the question, is Yahweh your God? You know he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Peter and John, the God of Paul, the God of Spurgeon, the God of Paul Washer. Is he the God of Nick? Is he the God of Carol, the God of John, the God of Christine, the God of Henry? The God of Christopher—that is the question we need to ask ourselves. First Chronicles 28:9, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve Him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. We are called and designed to be worshippers of the one true God. And if our worship does not fall to Him, if we do not receive Him as Savior, then we are in violation of God's command. We are not under the grace of Jesus if we cannot worship Him. Psalm 103, 1, in a positive encouragement, tells us, Let all that is within me bless His holy name. There is more to be said about the proper worship of God and commandments 2, 3, and 4 are going to very much so highlight how we should revere the name of God how we should worship him exclusively at the sc- exclusion of all other gods, and how we should be intentional about the way that we approach God and worship, uh, particularly through the pattern of the Sabbath. Uh, but tonight, as we have talked about the exclusivity of our worship to God, I pray that it has encouraged us and reminded us that this connection that we have to him is not a connection uh, that is simply legal, but it is a connection that is everything to our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you have any questions, we've got some time for discussion. If anybody wants clarification on anything that was taught tonight or would like to bring up anything that this brought to their minds. Ross.
1: Um, actually, two, two comments. Uh, number one, um, I appreciate you uh, bringing us to reflect upon the need to have that personal relationship with God that is not a far off or some distant being, but rather um, one whom you have conversations with, one whom you, whose face you seek, one whom you recognize as being the creator of the universe, infinite in power and infinite in knowledge and wisdom and righteousness. He's holy and when somebody would go and carve an idol, you can't help but think that person doesn't have a personal relationship to God. If you do, you would have no desire to go and you know, make a carved image or, or something like that. Anyway, that, so the, just the fact that you're encouraging us to be praying to God, to talking to God, uh, to be meditating upon His Word um, it's, it's so important. Um,
0: There's another aspect of that real quick, um, yeah. Ross, since you brought that up, that is also important. I think maybe a message that is even more poignant to our culture today is that we cannot over-personalize our relationship with the Lord where we make our connection to Him be so exclusive that it becomes this unique thing that's just between me and God. And forget the fact that he has called us to be his people in the context of a family and a covenant community. So I think it's also very, very important for us to recognize that while this relationship with God cannot be like a clinical, legal relationship or just simply academic, it needs to be of the heart. You know, the, the greatest command upon which the first four commands of the table are are based is to love the Lord your command with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that positive, you know, encouragement and and Distinction to love the Lord your God should really define our relationship with Him, but it it shouldn't just be a me and Jesus against the rest of the world mentality. It should be part of the body of
1: Christ as Head, you know, we're part of a greater body. So, yeah, I I, I appreciate you you mentioning that. Um, The other is that anytime I get Involved in a presentation or a conversation where other gods are brought up. Uh, first commandment: Thou shalt not uh, shall have no other gods before me or besides mm-hmm. me. Um, it can. Somebody can imply. Uh, can it can be implied. That in fact, other gods do exist in the supernatural world. Mm. Now, I agree that Satan exists. I agree that demons exist. I agree that holy angels exist and yep. cherubim and seraphim. And I, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll take it that far. But uh, some people are thinking, well, you know, are there other gods out there that actually have some power to move an object to heal your body, to change the weather or something like that, and they're really just a a figment of one's imagination.
0: Or a cheap knockoff of the true god. Because you might remember that the Roman Empire under which Christianity first was planted and began to bloom, the Caesars of the Roman Empire often loved to try to convince their people that they were somehow godlike, that they had uh, a, a worshipful element of power to them. They, they enjoyed convincing the masses that they were the power that the, the citizens should turn to for their oversight and protection and, and, and provision. So there's also this idea of... of uh, being enamored with something that is far less than God. And I I think we need to set our sights higher. We need to demand that people understand that to be God is a very specific and narrow thing. It's not just to be greater than a man, right? It's not just to be something, a step up from humanity, but it is to be perfect. It is to be all-knowing. It is to be powerful without restriction. It is to be the things that only God himself is.
1: Yeah, and and, and I'm I'm thinking in terms of supernatural powers I yeah. I understand that somebody can refer to Caesar as God but they aren't correctly referring to him as one who has supernatural powers so this this concept that there might be other lesser gods floating around there and this one can do this and this one can do that and you know, the goddess of fertility and the god of of whatever, of lightning bolts, uh, you know. (laughs) um, They flat out do not exist in the heavenlies. They only exist in a person's imagination.
0: Yeah. An argument can be made that Spiritual warfare-wise, demonically, there could be some force that has some sense of limited power that is masquerading as a god, which has the ability to deceive people into thinking that they're gods. I
1: would agree um, that people a who demon are caught up in, in the occult do something that yeah. you know somebody's holding this little stick or something like that sure. and showing that they're God and there's a demon that is going to they have supernatural powers, and, but they're not, they're not a god, they're just, a, right. they're just an angel.
0: And Paul, how does Paul say it? He says, um, gods who are no such gods, right? I can't remember exactly how he phrases it, but it's he makes it clear it's in, in, yeah, in yeah. Galatians that... Or, or
1: Isaiah mocks, basically yeah. mocks... But uh, these idols uh, are nothing but... Like, you know, you take this piece... inventions of, you, of you use this wood to go and you know, cook your bread, and then you <laughs> use the leftovers to make an idol that's supposed to have supernatural powers, and you just burnt some of it to, for your dinner.
0: Yeah. I think it's, a, I think it's a, a worthwhile approach, too, for somebody who's caught up in that kind of error uh, to turn that around and say, I think this is evidence of the one true God permeating or o- overseeing and reigning over all of his existence, that in every culture, the heart of man tries to make a God for himself. Everyone's trying to find that something, that supernatural something, that even if it's science-based. You know They're trying to reach beyond what they are. And I think that, in some ways, Indicates that written on the conscience of man is this this knowledge that there is a true God just as Romans 1 teaches us that man is without excuse And so it's not Unheard of or surprising that man would try to attribute Godhood to something even if it's not truly what God really is
1: and the, an, an application Would be in the Muslim world. Yeah, they worship Allah and is no supernatural allah yeah. there is god there are demons you know, there are holy angels but there is no allah there is in in true reality in in the supernatural world yeah and so when somebody agrees with someone else who says, Oh, we're all worshiping the same God, you know, Allah is the same as, you know, the Christian God and the right. Jewish God and the, the Hindu gods or whatever, we're all worshiping the same being. I said, No, no, there's only one, yeah. and it's not Allah. Right. So, okay, yeah, so
2: my piece. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah, I like how you, uh, your, you know, the commandments themselves are we think of the law designed to bring us to Christ, right? And it's supposed to put us down where where we belong, where we came from, to the dust, right? And then you know, the love of God, the sacrificial love of God, to desire to want to serve and to obey him has to take place first before we will actually ever love him. You know, we love him because he first loved us, right? So I really appreciated that. I was gonna ask a question about the just the connection to having other gods and you know, kinda of the way we speak, but then Ross kinda of got my attention on something. I was just like the part we had said about uh the quote Galatians, right? When we said just now indeed we did not know God, we serve those which by nature are not gods, right? So we know that, obviously, pantheism is, is, is false, right? Yeah. And I think that's what kind of cautions me about some of Michael Hydra's stuff. It sounds like pantheism, you know, to me. And that's what the Mormons hold mm-hmm. to, right? So yeah. I, don't, I don't think we can hold the orthodoxy and, and hold to that. I think the most simplest way to explain it is in First Chronicles, it says, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but that the Lord made the heaven. And heaven. So, in the supernatural realm, yes, there are these, you know, demonic, principalities, powers, they deceive, and they do receive worship, and they're hiding behind these little statues, you know, I mean, growing up Catholic, I used to see a lot of weird, weird, weird weird stuff, you know, we look at it and we think, oh man, that's so strange, but, you know, from culture to culture, whether it's Hispanic, people from Spain or whatever, they really take that stuff seriously, especially my wife's family. Yeah. Like, we've seen some really scary stuff where they get to talking to these things and, you know, and then they get drunk and they start sounding different and you're like, wait a minute, man, what's going on here, right? But it's like, it's a spirit world, you know, you know, coming to fruition right before us. So I do believe that those little, you know, statues or whatever, and these saints and these lost loved ones, like, uh, yeah, you know, like Delos Marcos, where they celebrate and all that stuff, that stuff is sinister. I mean, there's really, you know, demons behind that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's you know? definitely an avenue for deception. And we have to caution people that you know, the first commandment protects us from those very errors. That, you know, these principalities and powers, they're real, they exist, but they are not gods. And we cannot a- attribute to them any kind of worshipful adoration or reverence like we would give to our god. We should see them as they are. You know, they're they're a part of God's creation. They're absolutely subordinate to the sovereignty of our God and our King. Uh, and if we try to raise them up to anything greater than that, then uh, we're putting ourselves in danger. Christopher. All
3: right. So I want your input in a conversation I was having with Paul. And Paul, if you want to interject, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So. Yay, nay, why? Paul is like, it's a bat, right? Not a picture of Yahweh. So as long as you don't think it's Yahweh, Exodus 34, and you calf, or worship it as some other deity, you're good. Not a graven in image. Then I reply with, but Exodus 20 got me tripping on my bats, yo. It says no likeness, period, of anything on earth, heaven, sees. Then he replies with, well, think of the tabernacle. It had statues of bones and fruit. Context is worshiping those things. The main warning is against worshiping the true God. The yeah. This is the topic for Sunday, blah, 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 blah. So explain to me that.
0: So, the context of the first table of the ten is what? What are we learning through the first table?
3: How to treat God and how
0: to treat other How to worship Him, right? How to exist in a worshipful relationship with Him. So, I, I know that some people are, are hypersensitive about the whole idea of any kind of statue of any kind is automatically a violation of that Uh, but a statue of a bowl of fruit that's not to be worshipped that seems like an overreach i think what god is trying to protect us from is not worshiping anything great so if you build something for the particular function of being worshipped or to represent a greater being then you're violating the second commandment but if you're not building something for the specific Uh, Reasons of worshiping it or giving it veneration, I think think you're doing okay. I think the exception to that would be we really should not try to make images of Christ or of God because any image that we make of him is like an insult to his infinite perfection. So I think it's beautiful that God was not depicted in artistic forms through Israel. He didn't call his people to carve things that look like him or to build statues of him because he knew the heart of man would be corrupted and would take that the wrong way. So I don't think we should ever really make statues of Christ. Um, we're going to get more into that in question uh, two, so it would be probably a good thing to bring up when we get there. But um, that's where I stand on it. And then the
3: tabernacle, that was in First Kings, right? Is that what you're talking
4: about? Is that what you're talking about? The tabernacle is in through exodus and then they give yeah. the instructions on how to build it. That's oh yeah, the and so the thing you focus, So degree like the basin where they would clean. Get, there's bowls that held up the basin. Yeah. And there's pomegranates along the walls. So the so I might be different than other people in here as well too. I would see the first commandment, they're obviously related, but they're particularly different. So whereas I wouldn't say the second commandment is talking specifically about making an idol to let's say Buddha. I would say that's covered in the first command. Because that's a, that's a, that's worshiping another god, other than Yahweh. The second commandment for what I, the position I would take, is that the second commandment is about worshiping God through images. Worshiping Yahweh through any images. So, you worship other gods through images, well that's false worship already, the false god. The second commandment is about preserving the right worship of the true God. Because God doesn't want to be worshiped through images. again, like you never see Yahweh instructing Israel at all. Set up the statue of me,
0: um, you know, create a dove. He doesn't even let them make no, 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 no. the altars out of hewn stones. Like, he makes them take raw stones and make the altars out of that because he doesn't want it to become an artistic thing. So,
4: and so the golden calf is 32. I think, actually, I don't know I was wrong. I said 34, but he talks it
2: about
4: But, so what happens is, you know, they say Aaron makes, um, they're, they're, they're grumbling because they want Moses to down sure and ask going on. And so Aaron has them collect all their gold, and they make a golden calf and says, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. And it just, well, who led them out of Egypt? It was Yahweh. It was Yahweh led them out. But they were representing Yahweh by that golden calf. And so that's, you know, that's, they were trying to worship the right God, the true God, through the golden calf, which is what God doesn't want to be worshipped in that manner.
0: What's his the use of the plural there, though, for God's?
4: <laughs> What do
0: you mean? In 32,
4: what's. Because that's a plural there, isn't it? Yeah. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? No, it's a plural of calf. Mm-hmm. do you a golden calf, made a golden calf and it said, These
0: are your gods. Right. Yeah, that's what I think that's yeah. indicative of the influence that the culture of Egypt had had on the people. Mm-hmm. That they had been under this false worship for so long that it was kind of ingrained in them. I'm not saying that they were. Like properly worshiping in the Egyptian style while they were in Egypt, but it was around them, you know. Even the things that were given to them as they fled, you know, the, the Egyptians gave them gold articles. Some of them were probably idols, you know. Some yeah. of them were probably There's formed old, gods you know? made, I mean, you know. And so they probably melted some of those down to make the calf. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, th- I think you get cultural influence there that corrupts the true worship of God. We can't let our culture dictate the terms by which we honor God when He's already said this is how I want to be honored. He's already, it's not a mystery. It's, it's plain. said, it's This is how we worship him. You
3: know, it's funny. I think that's written on our heart, anyways, because regarding that golden calf, didn't Aaron lie about that? Didn't he say it oh, yeah. just walked out by itself? So yeah. he knew. Now came this golden
0: <laughs> calf. He
1: like, he so.
0: Yeah, that was, like a, that was like an Adam and Eve moment where exactly. they're like, <laughs> Pointing everybody else. It's not me. It's not me. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, this woman, Gregory, that, When it comes to the old Egyptian. Israelite distinction. I just got through reading Genesis. And um there were some times when you could tell that their you know, their views didn't mesh with the Israelites when it came to Joseph and you know, and and uh, and Jacob, you know, you just you could see where they were like, Well, I think it was one time when he was like, well, I wanna be buried outside these gates, right? Or I can't quite remember what it was, but there was something I was reading in there and I was like, hmm. It didn't seem like the uh, customs of Egyptians kind of coincided with what even yeah. the Israelites knew at that time to be right. You know? Secretism doesn't work,
0: man. Yeah. Secretism <laughs> is always corruption. When we try to like add the flavor of Christianity to some other native religious structure, it's it's
2: always corrupted. But it happens. That's why I was uh, you were saying it earlier, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me until you said secretism the, um, about why would somebody make I know I've run into a lot of Romans where I'm thinking, okay, they're believers and they engage in these different things. Um, do you think a person who does that is not, can't be regenerative, is that what you're saying? Um, I wouldn't say
1: can't. I would, it'd be a tough one. Um, you certainly wouldn't be mature in your faith, I don't
2: know, it might be one of those uh, what differences there, I well just because when I think of Aaron right I mean his sons were killed right before him and he held his peace, I mean he knew what he what his sons were doing wrong. <coughs> obviously I think later on he still partook of the same sin I think of uh, Solomon right I mean Solomon clearly was not worshipping you know Yahweh the way he had prescribed. He was going and following after other gods, you know, after other idols. And I don't think that means that he wasn't going to give us a lot of Bible, right? He was, you know, he was un, under, you know, he was unconverted while he was you know, writing God scripture, right? So I think I think it's possible for a Christian just like David was to be deceived and his son for a season um, and then we yeah. need God to bring us out of that. so so, our job is not really to
0: tell a person that they are saved or not saved. It is to warn them of the reality that if you don't walk in the truth and someone shows you the truth and you're unrepented of it, then that's indicative of a lack of the Holy Spirit. So, we, we charge people with the truth and we urge them to repent, turn them back to Christ. You know, that's a responsibility that we, we have more than just trying to identify. You know? mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, I wouldn't prescribe it as an acid test. Uh,
2: Yeah, because we have idols, I mean, even yeah. it may not be as like obvious as when it's like that, but, you know, what's that one that Paul said to whom you present yourselves? Um, no, um, your members to whom you obey, right? Whether, whether you know, slaves to righteousness. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, or slaves to sin. So, you know, I struggle with football a lot. I struggle with just... A lot of different things, a lot of projects that I like to do, doing them way too much, and then sometimes it's easy to block the Lord out of your mind when you get involved in stuff, right? So it may not look like that where it's so obvious where somebody carving something up and then sitting down there and you know praying or kneeling to it, but you know, still idolatry.
0: Part of the reason why I ended tonight just reflecting on the victory of Christ in regards to the first commandment and I I like to think about the 10 and think about how Christ fulfilled those commands and how we are going to fall short of those things but praise be to God that through grace we can be reconciled to him and that our sin and our failure can be washed clean by his blood so it's not our own righteousness that we carry into eternity it's the righteousness of Christ and so we have cause to rejoice and to be grateful and and, uh, hopefully that leads to more repentance in our lives and more
2: maturity you just summed up our Sunday
4: school listen to the recording oh. any other okay. any other notes guys
0: alright well let me close this the word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed you can uh, stick around and hang out and talk some more if you like these are some good things to talk about so Father, we thank you for your grace, and we want to worship you as you have called us to worship you, and God, help us to realize that there isn't some uh, worldly kind of worship that will give us a greater real joy uh, than worshiping according to your commands can give us. Help us to know that you are honored best when we honor you according to how you've instructed us to do so, Lord. So let us not be autonomous in our uh, understanding of, of how to bring you glory, Lord. Help us to do what we were made to do. And Father, you're the one who teaches us how to do that. So thank you for being the one and only God. And I pray God that every uh, thing that tries to be an idol in our lives, Lord, that you would subject it to Christ, that you would topple it down if necessary. Uh, that, Father, uh, those would be the, the pieces of wood upon which we offer our sacrifices to you of praise and, and gratitude. You are a holy and redeeming God. And we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We pray it all in his perfect name. Amen. Amen.